Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Jennifer Prout, who is the author of Building a Caliphate, Construction, destruction, a sectarian identity in, of the early Fatimid Caliphate. And we were, when we were talking earlier, you said that the Fatimids are your favorite Islamic Caliphate. So why, what made them your favorite? Oh, uh, so this is, it's so complicated. So what I love about the Fatimids is that they reign in a time in which there are three Caliphates. So oh. when the Prophet Muhammad died, uh, we have a series of successors. And this is where the word caliph comes from, right? So caliph, it means to succeed. So it means that anyone who is a caliph is a successor to the prophet Muhammad. Um, at the time that the Fatimids reigned, though, we have three of them. Now, mm. you can't have three successors to the prophet Muhammad, right? There should only yeah. be one caliph at any one. He did have a kind of huge family, though, to be fair. Yeah, So, but so that's an interesting point. So... What we have during the Fatimid period, especially the early Fatimid period, is we have three different powers saying, hey, we're the caliphs, we're the rightful successors. Hmm. One is in Baghdad, one is in Cordoba in Spain, and one is in Egypt, in Cairo. Um, And so each of them say we're the rightful successors. The Fatimids are the only ones that are actually related to the Prophet Muhammad. So they, they, they are Shi'i in orientation, right? They are, they are Shiites. Um, And so they believe that a Caliph needs to be from the Prophet's family. Um, So, so they believe this. And then they really, they found Cairo as a capital city for the first time. And so this is one of the reasons that they're my favorites is that I love, I love Cairo. I've spent a lot Mm. of time in Cairo. Um, So this was the time that Cairo was a kind of capital city of the Caliphate. The other reason I love the Fatimids is that they have a really kind of unique religious identity um, that we can, we can talk about as as she has said was quite new at the time too, weren't it? Yeah. And when we talk about today, like Shiism versus Sunnism, um, the contours of those were not quite as stark um, during this period. So Shiism is really kind of emerging as its own thing. So in fact, the word Shiism comes from the Arabic Shiat Ali, which basically just means party of Ali. So they Shias believe that um, it, it was Ali, the, the cousin and son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad, um, that that line should always be the ruler, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not Sunnis might have believed that, you know, this, the community decides on the ruler. Uh, the Shia believe that only that line uh, should be the caliph. Um, so uh, and so but we see that those those contours become more stark as we go along. And actually, the Fatimids are part of what makes that line more stark. So they believed for sure that um, 
that the 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 lineage the the person needs to come from the lineage of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, they also believed that that person had this kind of semi divine role on earth, so mm. that whoever was the successor, who was the caliph, was also called the Imam, where he has this kind of mm. you know direct link to God. Yeah. So it makes them really quite distinct. The Fatimids were trying to falling falling from power at that time as well. So was that kind of what allowed them to like challenge Fatimid power that the the Abbasids were falling out that they, yeah, they didn't have the power they once had? Yeah. So the Abbasids had already kind of been declining in power, and in fact, uh, to make the story more complicated, actually were kind of practically ru- ruled by another Shi'i dynasty called the Buyids. So, so the Abbasids are still there as caliphs, but you know, the practical for practical purposes, we have this other dynasty. So, yeah. So this allows you know the Umayyads to come, the Umayyads in Spain to come to this you know new to declare themselves caliphs for the Fatimids to declare themselves caliphs, um, and so that we have this kind of rivalry. Yeah. So how did they manage to like become this this Like how did they build up their army? Did how did how did they manage to to do this? How did they manage to gain power? They weren't like they weren't very influential family at the time, were they, if I remember correctly? Yeah, so they it's it's interesting because our early information for the Fatimids is a little bit murky. And part of that is because before they really started having these more imperial ambitions. They operated as kind of a clandestine mission, right? Mm. So they they followed a particular line of um, of succession. Uh, they had particular doctrinal beliefs that were quite distinct from other groups, uh, and they operated really in secrecy until kind of the the turn of the tenth century. Mm. Um, so they had been operating as this kind of clandestine mission in Syria, uh, in, a, in a town called Salamia. Then um, they moved to North Africa. So they had been more than gathering armies. Um, they had been gathering missionaries. So we have this whole kind of missionary network called yeah. the Dawa that's like going out and propagating Ismaili thought. Then when they come to Tunisia, they kind of they gain support of various Berbers and and kind of other groups. So they're able to amass their armies. They're able to build up even a naval foundation. Um, and so they operate out of Tunisia for about 60 years. Then in Egypt, uh, so in 969, they conquer uh, Egypt. Um, and at that time, Egypt had been ruled pretty ineffectually by kind of vassals of the Abbasids. So Egypt was in pretty rough shape. And so Egypt kind of folded pretty easily. But didn't they fail the first conquest of Egypt though? Yeah, they had they had tried a couple of times to conquer Egypt and then finally were able to do so. So Egypt had always been on their radar. They always wanted to get Egypt. Um and it was in 969 that they were able to be successful. And then they became obsessed with conquering Syria. So they conquered Egypt uh, pretty quickly thereafter. They um so so when they conquer Egypt, they have control of all of North Africa 
and Egypt, and um, they quickly gained control of the holy cities. So Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem, which is really important because it means yeah. they have this Islamic legitimacy. Yeah, um, and, and as, you they, know, as you know, that you can't be really be a caliphate without Mecca and Medina. Medina right, right, exactly. So that so that was a big uh, a big coup. Um, but then they spend the next you know century or so really trying to conquer Syria as well, and they don't have a lot of luck. Uh, conquering Syria. Mm. So what's what what makes the Syrian campaign so draw so badly? What is it Byzantine ter- territory at this yeah, time? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're up against the Byzantines. They just are not getting a, a foothold. I couldn't tell you too much about the military strategy <laughs> since I'm an art <laughs> that's historian. Fair, that's I don't, fair. I don't know the details of of the armies, um, but uh, but they they were not able to get. A strong foothold and it was also kind of naval battles and and this sort of thing but they were not able to be they would kind of gain in syria then lose in syria and it was this kind of ongoing uh obsession of theirs Mm. so why did they establish establish sorry cairo as the capital what would they because as you know the opposite they found and then created a new capital was cairo founded that was it an entire new city like baghdad or was it already a small city at the time in some ways kind of so uh so cairo had existed as a center so so basically all egypt had always been important so even though it wasn't a capital city um it has always been you know an important center Mm -hmm. of of empires so um what we found is that in the previous empires as they would kind of conquer they would set up a kind of new city center Mm-hmm. So those city centers kind of gradually moved north. And so in a way, when the Fatimids conquered and set up Cairo, it was really just slightly to the north of the old mm-hmm. city centers that we kind of call it Fustan. Well, what was it a strategic location, Cairo, or was it just that we like this place? I mean, it looks like a nice place to be. Well, it can it's on the um the the there was a canal that linked it to the Red Sea, so it was a, a very kind of important strategic location. It was a source of you know grain and other kinds of mm. goods. Um, was it near the Nile? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cairo's on the Nile, mm. and and yeah, and the Nile has shifted, but where the Fatimids set up, there would have been a kind of part of the Nile that went yeah. right by, and so they set up. Instantly, basically, as soon as they conquered Cairo, the general Jalhar uh, sets up a palace, right? So he builds a palace and he builds a mosque. So these are the kind of two, you know, most important things for an Islamic ruler to have. Okay, so what would be the difference between, between, as you know, majority at the time, I believe, was Sunni. But not too many people were Shiite. And we talked a little bit about this. But what would be the yeah. difference between a Shiite rule versus an Abbasid rule? Did the people like notice a difference there between Shiite caliphate versus a Ab- Sunni caliphate, which the Abbasids were? Yeah, so were? there are some differences. So for the Fatimid, so as I said, so this the Imam, so the the ruler has this kind of direct link to God, right? So and okay. of course the Caliph is an important religious figure too, but it's not this kind of like actual he holds the truths of God. He was um, not like a hundred percent autocratic monarch, really. What's that? He wasn't an autocratic monarch necessarily. Yeah. So, I mean, for sure, his his uh, his 
believers thought that he really was God's representative mm. on earth, right? That he, so for example, the Fatimids also believed that in a distinction between a kind of visible reality, like what we see, and then the hidden meanings of everything. Mm. So they call it this distinction between the botan, the hidden, and the dahir, or what we see. Yeah. And so to them, only the imam knows these things, right? Now, the Sunni majority, you know, your average Sunni walking around Cairo probably didn't care, but certainly Sunni legal scholars mm. did care about this, right? Yeah. This this was all mostly was the mostly the nobility would notice the difference here, right? Yeah, and then th there were ways that that was made very um, overt. So, for example, there's there's a slightly uh, there's a slightly more there's a slight change in how the call to prayer is done for Shia versus Sunnis. Uh, there's a difference in how Ramadan begins. So mm -hmm. there are some of these practical differences uh, that were in place. And we see that the Fatimids um, at various times either assert those, right, so that they assert this difference, or at other times they get rid of those differences so that they don't appear yeah. uh, different. Was this kind of a controversy in the Islamic world at the time, or that it kind of happened in different places? It does seem to have been, yeah. So, so one problem or one um, complication that we have from the Fatimid era is that most of our sources actually post-date the Fatimid era. Mm -hmm. um, so that um, we do have Fatimid sources that are preserved in like later encyclopedias or histories. Um, but that we don't have a ton of kind of geographies or chronicles that are right from the Fatimid era. So they certainly play up the difference um, and see it as very problematic. It does seem that the other, for sure, the other caliphates, you know, brought up this difference and and try to kind of make it a political issue. Whether your average person on the streets of Cairo cared, you know, that's something that we don't, we don't know. Yeah. So, okay, so... There is a set of two different sects that appears at the time under the, under the Fatimid Caliphate, which was the Seveners and the Twelvers. Who were they? And is it weird? <laughs> does it kind of sound like a football team a little bit? The Seveners the and the Twelvers. Seveners versus Oh, football teams now are into the <laughs> Eric categories. Um, but yeah, but the, so, 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 but so the Twelvers are not. So, so the Twelvers are not really part of the story. So you're talking about. So now we're getting really into Shiism. So within Shiism, there's a lot of splits. And so this is when I say like the strict contours between Shiism and Sunnism were not really developed at that time. That's because there's so many kind of smaller groups mm. and each, you know, they're all kind of have these slight differences. So we call the Ismailis. So the Fatimids are part of this Ismaili line, Seveners. And the reason we call them this is that they believe um, that uh, the seventh imam has actually gone into occultation, meaning he's disappeared from earth, but is still kind of around. Yeah. <laughs> so he's going to kind of reappear um, as a kind of messiah figure, a mahdi. Um, for the twelvers, which is so most Shia today are twelvers, right? So if, mm. if you think about, you know, the, the Shi'i community in Iran, they're all twelvers. Um, they believe also oh, the sect is still going on today in the Islamic world. Yeah, so for sure the Twelvers are you know going really strong. Is it, is it right to call it a sect though, kind of, or is it? Uh... What's that? 
Is it right to call this sex at this point? No, can you can that be? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, so the Twelvers, though, you know, think that there's this other imam who's disappeared. Um, and they, anyway, we can go, I, I don't want to go into too much detail because I'll, I'll nerd mm. out over the differences because they're fascinating. So most Shia today are Twelvers, but we do have communities of Ismailis as well, or Seveners. And in fact, you know, I think probably the most famous kind of um, group of those are those who believe that the Aga Khan, who, um, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a, you know, an important religious figure, um, that he is the living imam. So we still yeah. have people who, you know, there is a living guy who actually does a lot of great work for art and architecture. Um, they believe that he is the imam of our age. Mm. So what what were the, what were they doing? How did the twelve verses and seven years kind of spread in the Islamic world at, you know, during the Fatimid times? Well, so during the Fatimid times, I mean, they they kind of it's interesting because they didn't spread as much as you would mm-hmm. think, given that they were an empire. So they spread secretly. So the Fatimids had a very hierarchical structure of religious revelation. Mm-hmm. So, so they, what was this? Uh, do you go into the hierarchical structure for the yeah? So what was that, what that was called was the da'wah or like the call or the mission. And so it would mean that, so we really, I mean, it really is like kind of a, a, a pyramid, right? Yeah. So as, as you declare, I'm Ismaili, you get a little bit of that hidden knowledge that I spoke of. So, so as I said, this kind of this hidden knowledge of, 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 of reality or the kind of inner truths of the Ismaili belief system um you would get like a little bit of that and then as you rise up you get a little bit more and as you rise up you get a little bit more so things Mm. are kind of gradually revealed um to the initiated however many of the initiated unless you're really part of the Kyrene court if you're close to the court you can kind of live openly most of the Ismailis kind of lived in secret so they Mm. tell people that they were Ismaili um they didn't you know they didn't spread it um so, which is very fascinating, right? So, yeah. uh, and these, you know, the the kind of the the your best places to learn were in the Cairo Fatimid city. So, within the the walled palace, this is where like a lot of these hidden truths were revealed. What's interesting, though, is it doesn't seem like Ismailism as a faith spread all that far and wide. So, for example, once the Fatimids left Egypt, we have like hardly any Ismailis. They haven't converted. The population. Hmm. So let's talk about Cairo for a second. The city. How did how did that one flourish during the Fatimid era? The unified Fatimid caliphate. Yeah, so it was very flourishing. So they had, you know, they had a lot of resources from crops. They had, of course, the Nile, and then the Fatimids had a lot of conquests. So we also have, you know, goods from from these conquests. So it was it was a very wealthy, particularly in the first part of the Fatimid dynasty. It was a very wealthy dynasty. You know, we have tales of of travelers coming to the Kyrene Palace mm-hmm. and being amazed at the wonders therein. Um, so it was it was extraordinarily wealthy. So as we know, if you read a little bit of Islamic history, you know that they were somewhat tolerant. And we discussed this in the episode with Virginia Arsant a while ago as well. That you I mean, then we asked the question, what is tolerance? What can right. it really be? But where where the tolerance in, in the religious beliefs as the previous empires and caliphates has been like, how did they tolerate Sunni 
we're really kind of like second rate citizens in a in a sense of where how how yeah, was the race I mean, in the Fatimids? Yeah, the Fatimids are known for having been very tolerant. And of course, you know, as you said, tolerance is one of these things that kind of waxes and wanes, right? So mm. Um, so it's not that other caliphates were always intolerant, right? We have, we have, you know, great moments of, of tolerance and cooperation under, under all of the caliphates and then moments of, of friction. And I mean, and I think it's fair to say that they were more tolerant than what Europe were at the time though. Oh, sure. yeah. I mean, they're all compared to Europe. <laughs> far more tolerant. I mean, we don't, we don't have. It's a much more religiously diverse society. So, I mean, for example, you know, Egypt had large populations of not only Sunnis, but Christians and Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all, you know, lived together and got along. And we have, uh, well, you know, not always, but often got along. Uh, yeah. And we know that Christians and Jews rose to high positions within the Fatimid court, um, many of whom didn't even convert. Um, so, uh, and then, yeah, Sunnis too mm-hmm. are, you know, completely tolerated and i'm sure in like some you know religiously they were considered not as great but i think politically it was it was no difference i think i don't remember where i read it or which caliphate exactly it was but i i think it was the fatimids where there was a you can see sometimes that a jew a christian and a muslim we would talk together and have scholarly debates and they were yeah, together no problem yeah, and that's not that's not exclusive to the Fatimid Caliphate, but that we do we have you know many prominent examples of that happening under the Fatimids. Which so, I yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's a very very different picture of the Middle Ages uh, from what we uh, you know think about in Europe. So we mm. really do have a kind of practical. People were allowed. People did not need to convert. Um, people generally were mm. allowed to to practice. I mean, it's not. It's not a modern sensibility of tolerance, right? It's it's yeah. still religion is still very important. You have to pay a tax, of course. I mean, said it several times. And they're taxed have to more, exactly. So there's the jizya. So they do have they do have to pay more in taxes if they're not uh, Muslim. Mm-hmm. So and in some ways, you know, the the caliphs needed those populations. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it wasn't just the Ottomans who's made like who's mostly famous for the Janissaries, of course, but the 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 other Islamic caliphs like the Fatimids, I believe. Did take Christian children into slave soldiers as well. It wasn't yeah. just an Ottoman event, an invention, right? No, and of course, and yeah, that, I mean exactly. that's how you got so the Mamluks in the first they're place. Conscripted, and the reason that this is is that you can't you can't bring a Muslim into slavery, right? It's forbidden. Mm, yeah. So they would bring these children in, and when, of course, you know the 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 big um, caveat is when we talk about slavery in this time. You know, it's very different from, you know, what as an American, we yeah. picture it's not like chattel slavery, but it's still slavery. It was right? more like Roman slavery in the it sense. It was more exactly. Yeah. So and, and some of them rose to very high ranks and, um, you know, this this sort of thing. Um, in fact, we have a whole dynasty, the Mamluks, who are built yeah. from these slave soldiers. Yeah. So, of course, when. Let's talk about the, like you said you, that this is where you uh, your study is the art is the Islamic art and architecture. So what was that like during the Fatimids? We got of course the famous Al Akim Mosque. Let's let's talk about uh Fatimid art and architecture. How did that go during during the Fatimids? Yeah, so we're really lucky in that we have you know from 
from such an early period. I mean, Cairo, for, for anyone listening, if you like the Middle Ages, go to Cairo because we have so many monuments that remain um, in Cairo from... There is a palace that walls are still up there, right? They draw the palace walls in Fatima. Well, the walls walls are still up, yeah, but nothing remains of the Fatimid palace besides Mm. the walls. But yeah, so you can see these, these, you know, 11th century walls. And they um, are massive. They are massive, and they're really kind of masterworks of carving. And then you go through the walls, and you encounter just dozens of other medieval monuments. I mean, Mm. it's really just an embarrassment of, Mm -hmm. of medieval riches um so for the Fatimids what we see is that in the first part of the dynasty uh we have a patronage primarily of big Friday mosques and the palace like those are kind of the big centers of patronage what's interesting is that as the dynasty starts to crumble so uh we only have not even a hundred years where they are those like really powerful rich caliphs that are controlling all these things and, you know, making these huge claims. Um, Things start to get rough for them. They lose territory. There are a series of economic crises. And so the last hundred years of the Fatimids, they're not the kind of the powerful caliphs that we had seen early on. And in, but in that period of, of relative decline, we get a plethora of these really kind of, wonderful smaller structures many of which are shrines so we get shrines to kind of saintly figures uh shrines to people from the family of the prophet muhammad who of course would be particularly important for the fatimids um so we we get these different kinds of structures the people still go see them if they go to cairo for example today or other parts of fatimid yeah you can still see that now i will say what's interesting is many of the fatimid monuments have been pretty heavily restored sometimes in ways that are not responsible to the original material so Mm. uh, what's fascinating it's actually largely an ismaili community from south asia and who has restored them in a way that's great for their community but you know we you know persnickety historians historians is kind of unknown yeah yeah we're like ah everything's gleaming and you know um so but but you can still see them and and many of them are still important sites of of piety um so the Fatimids are also known for having really fantastic portable arts so they're particularly known for luster ceramics which have this kind of metallic sheen Mm -hmm. um a lot of kind of figural arts relative to to other dynasties ivories wood you know they they have a lot of artistic production Mm -hmm. So, so do forgive me, I'm not too great with remembering names, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, but that's not something you haven't talked much about, is the caliph themselves. So do you have some memorable caliphs from the area that is worth mentioning that did transmission to the great caliphs or not some not-so-great caliphs that we could talk about worth mentioning here? Sure, yeah, tons. <laughs> a lot of caliphs. Um, so... As I said, so in this beginning stage, we have uh, three three caliphs in Cairo that are really, you know, powerful. So there's Al-Moyiz, Al-Aziz, and Al-Hakim. Um, so Al-Moyiz, uh, you know, founds Cairo. Wasn't Al-Hakim who kind of walked out of the desert and just disappeared? Was that yeah? Him? So he is the most fascinating character. Mm. So he, so so we have Al-Moyiz, Al-Aziz. You know, they're building the empire. They're, you know, considered good rulers. They're very tolerant of the populations. Um, you know, they're really considered these kind of, uh, this kind of golden age of Fatimid rule. 
Then El Hakim comes along. So many people think that he was insane um, because he has all of these edicts and he does them and he reverses them. Um, and he is, I mean, he is a singular historical figure. He's a very odd guy. And so some of the things that he does is he um, he's, he has a lot of persecution against Christians and Jews in his realm. He actually... Uh, because most... it wouldn't be, I mean, to be fair, it wouldn't be a medieval empire without persecution. But I mean, Islamic <laughs> medieval empires often don't have that. We, mm -hmm. I mean, we really, we really have, um, you know, many kind of tolerant empires. But of course, then we do have these kinds of flare-ups of, of mm -hmm. intolerance, right? It's not kind of, I mean, this is the problem, I suppose, of having this kind of ruler is that they can do whatever they want. Yeah. Um, so get one that that has this anyway. So he's he's very singular. So huge persecution against Christians and Jews. He most famously. Um, calls for the destruction of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, mm. which is, you know, a huge breach of a peace treaty that had been going on uh, with Byzantium. What's most fascinating is really the last few years of his life. So if you remember, I talked about, you know, the difference between this kind of hidden reality and this visible reality. Yeah. So there's a group of people who really take that to the extreme, right? Um, and so they really see Al-Hakim as not just being kind of God's representative, but God himself, right? Mm. They think Al-Hakim, he's God, all of Doesn't that kind of contradict Muhammad though? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, but, but to them, Al-Hakim brought in this kind of new era of, of, uh, teachings, right? He's, mm. he's wiped out kind of the old history. He is God himself. Those followers actually are now, uh, escaped Cairo and they're now known as the Druze. If you've heard of the Druze, D-R-U-Z. It's a religious minority that are mostly in the mountains of Syria and Lebanon. Mm. So they they are from this period. I mean, it's it's fascinating. So it's anyways, not a later assassins, is it? Yeah, so the assassins yeah. come out of this too. So are not from mm. the same moment, but basically these later years of the Fatimids, we get all these kinds of succession crises and all this yeah. splintering. And what we now know of the assassins kind of comes from one of those uh, splinterings. Um, but so, so Al-Hakim though, so these last years of his life, there's basically a huge crisis in Cairo because we have these people proclaiming that he's God. You know, lots of his kind of the Dawa, these Ismaili missionaries are, you know, trying to dial that back and saying like, no, no, <laughs> this is this is not right. We don't know exactly what Al-Hakim's role was in all of this. If he encouraged it, if he did, you know, sources say different things. He must have liked it somehow, though. I mean, who doesn't like me? Oh, I'm just, I'm a god. I, I think he probably did. Um, but he's found, so he goes for a walk in the mountains and uh, he's never found, but his cloak is mm -hmm. found, um, you know, with multiple stab, stab wounds. Um yeah. Yeah. Oh, are you frozen? Oh yeah, no, you you froze a little bit. You're back now, yeah. Okay. So yeah, just walked there. Does does it do you what do you think? Did he go insane? Just like I'm gonna so take the, a walk and never come back. Uh... Well, so he was known for taking these long walks. So mm. even prior to him going missing, he would go and like take these long walks. So that part was not um unique. 
Um, some people, you know, some of his followers thought he had himself gone into occultation, like he had mm. disappeared from the earth. Um, mm. I think most historians think it was likely an assassination by someone within the Fatimid mm. court. In particular, people think his sister. It was just uh, a cover-up story kind of thing. That she she might have called for his killing um, uh, because the, the other crazy thing that he does late in his reign is that, as I mentioned, so for the Ismailis, lineage is so important, right? So you have to kind of, you know, your lineage and your descendants is so important. Al-Hakim kind of messed this all up by not naming his son a successor, but by naming cousin, a cousin successor mm. and splitting the caliph and the imam. This is all, this is all just, you know, it's crazy. They were not fond of right? it. it right? That's just crazy. So, um, so it's thought that it was, you know, that his sister might have called for it in order to, you know, get a proper succession going. Yeah. Okay, so what? So how does it? What happens after his disappearance? What, what what's going on next? Then? So it's interesting. So so after he disappears, we have another ruler who comes to the throne at a very young age, and he rules. Oh gosh, maybe for 10, 15 years. I'm trying to remember. That's not too bad, though. Yeah, it's uh. Wait, hold on. I'm actually looking this up. Uh. I'm reigning. So how long did Azahir reign? Now I have to look this up because I'm an art historian and I'm terrible with dates. That's right. Yeah, so he reigns for about 15 years, but he's, um, you know, he comes to it young. So he is kind of a, re you know, he has a regent at first, so he's not mm. really in control. And he, so must in be a decent, way, he must be a decent cal caliph, though, if he managed to rule for so... It's kind of long in the Islamic... Uh, and try to fit history if you think about it, like he, that he managed to rule. Well, what's for this interesting long. though is that we don't. I mean, I think because he comes to the throne at a young age, um, we don't know. Uh, he's there's not a lot of record of him actually, mm. and part of that also has to do with like when geographies end and stuff. So we certainly we have a lot more information about Muiz Aziz Al Hakim than we do about Al Zahir. Um, yeah. For me, and so what he does is he kind of it's a period of kind of rebuilding. So he resecures peace treaties with mm. Byzantines. He allows them to rebuild the church, although it takes a while for them to actually do this. Um, and in my book, I discussed that he also calls at the same time that like, you know, he's allowing for the Holy Sepulchre to re be rebuilt. He also reimagines or, or patronizes the refurbishment of Islamic monuments within Jerusalem. Um, so he's he's kind of shoring up stuff in Jerusalem at the same time. But since you mentioned that it came on so young, was it more like a puppet, in a sense, to others? At the beginning, for sure, yeah. And Al-Hakim was too. I mean, many of these rulers come to the throne mm. very, very young. I mean, some even drama center six, seven, right? Exactly. Um, um, so, exactly. So, hold on one second. Yeah. So they, they um, often come quite young and... Uh, you know, mm -hmm. act. So Sitz al-Mulk, you know, in his early years, we think really had a lot of power, you know, mm -hmm. um, as her, as his aunt. Um, so, and, and we have another kind of succession issue that he kind of there, that reign tamps down. So, and then after that, so then, so then we have that period. Um, and then we have a, um, the next ruler reigns for a really long time, like over 20 years, Al-Mustansir. 
However, under his reign, we really have the dynasty crumbling a bit. I mean, we they're really losing ground. There's a you know more uh, internal crises and uh, you know the years where the Nile doesn't flood properly. Um, so we really see the empire kind of disintegrating, and he actually brings in a, a, an outside person, so mm -hmm. a general um uh Badr al-Jamali who he brings in who's uh, kind of an has an Armenian background is brought into Cairo and then we start to see kind of a division of of political responsibility who are, that's carried out by these like viziers and then the kind of the caliph still still being called the caliph still having this role of the imam for the faithful um but the kind of practical political matters and um are often carried out by these viziers who are often mm. these kind of military uh, generals or, or governors. Something we haven't talked much about, and I, I'm, I've been wanting to talk about this, uh, because as you said, obviously there's declining power, they were basically puppets at this point right. when the Fatimids came. But what was the tension like between these two caliphate, rival caliphates? What was it? Did they kind of accept each other to, or did they just like were rivals still? Oh, they're rivals. They're definitely rivals. Um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they don't like each other. So, so one of the things that could really rankle the other caliphate is to have, um, someone read the other caliph's name in the khutbah or the sermon, mm. the Friday sermon. So we have, you know, instances of, of the Abbasids trying to get people in Fatimid territory to to give a sermon in the name of the Abbasid Caliph. We have Fatimids doing the same. What the, like an insult kind of? No, it's just, so So if you picture like a sermon um, and you go through, it, they, they're not even insulting. They're simply giving the name of the Caliph. So they're kind mm. of recognizing the ruler. Oh, the right. Sermon, yeah. Right? I was thinking about so, Yeah. So they, they um, recognize the other oh war. right yeah yeah were they waging war on each other like I, I mean i know that in islamic in the islamic world you can't really wage war on another islamic but it's not it's, or other, other muslims but like where the and where they still happen of course but where it's so where they kind of wage yeah war i mean each other? for sure so they they basically have um almost like proxies a lot of times mm -hmm. so as you said like the abbasids had kind of lost territory and so but they have all these kind of vassals of mm. of the um uh the abbasid state so they have kind of wars and skirmishes with these with these vassals so for example like they you know they lose mecca the seljuks come in later in the reign too and they're mm. a huge huge force that are that operate nominally as vassals to the abbasids but you know the abbasids are really just figureheads um for the seljuks Something that fascinates me about the Abbasid, though, is that they still, well, technically just uh, not, technically not, but they're still kind of around when the Mongol invasion in the 1200s. Oh, yeah, oh, no, yeah, they're around. That's kind sure. of, that. that is just, that's what they sur survived the Fatimid Caliphates in a, in a sense. Oh, yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Abbasids are around for a long time and still... I mean, even the Ottomans are thought to bring the last caliph to um, to Istanbul, and mm. uh, you know they they remain really important um, ideological figures, even mm. if they're not politically powerful.
I'd, I'd rather admit that this is about this episode about the Fatimids. I, I must say that I really admire Abbasid history and Ab- the Abbasid Caliphate simply because they Oh, you they're... should. I mean, the Abbasids are yeah. amazing. They're, and there's the focus on science as well. That's that's what fascinates yeah. me, you know, that's, that they were so ahead of the times at, at the time when they were around. They really were. I mean, particularly kind of prior to the Fatimids. I mean, we, we uh, you know, you have basically you know, these huge centers of learning, you'd have scholars from Mm. all over the world come into Baghdad. Uh, We even have the preservation of, of, um, you know, Greek and Roman texts that were actually preserved, lost to kind of Europe, but preserved in Baghdad so that some, you know, later on when scholars are translating Greek and Roman texts, they're actually translating them from Arabic because that was the kind of conduit um, so yeah, so it's an extremely advanced, uh, extremely kind of multicultural. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as an art historian, the reason I say I don't like them as much as the Fatimids is simply because uh, most of the material remains of Baghdad, mm-hmm. uh, we just don't have a lot. So we have some mm-hmm. archaeological sites, but we have we have fewer things to look at um, than we do for the Fatimids. And that's what's fascinating me. Another thing about the Islamic world and Islamic history is that they were so welcoming of science, whereas Christianity in the medieval world were like you were shown upon and you were looked down upon if you were said you were a scientist. And whereas yeah, yeah. in the Islamic world you were, you know, welcome. Like yeah. It. And it was part of how you knew God too, mm. right? So that this was uh, you know, learning about the the natural world was not seen as being um in opposition to your faith but mm. a, a way to practice your faith yeah imagine where it would be if christianity were like that huh? yeah yeah <laughs> okay so yeah moving on back to the fatimids i'm sorry for getting a little distracted right there but you know they, they do start to decline at some point and of course it, it wouldn't be a islamic empire without its fitna so it's the, how does the fitna or civil war in the english language happen what what how does that how, so how, that where, does how did this happen? I, mean, I will say when I mean, we don't always have that as collapsing things in the islamic world but um in the case of the fatimids it's not really a civil war it's it's more just that things are kind of crumbling you know we mm. have they're, they're losing ground they don't have as much power um, there are various economic crises, and then there are several, you know, succession crises where the Ismailis go off in different groups. I mean, the way I, the reason I say they're not necessarily fitnas is that, you know, this is still such a minority population that people are not. I, I don't know that your average Egyptian cares that much about, you know, who's, you know, if this is this line or this line, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, but they do. They lose a lot of. I mean, we were talking about and this. Then you know, eventually they're kind of taken over by their own viziers who then yeah. are, you know, Sunni in um, confession and are now busy, you know, fighting the Crusades and the Seljuks and um, uh, mm. all of this. So, for example, I'm sorry, back to your earlier point about um, competing with um, Islamic rule. You had mentioned the walls of Cairo before. Yeah. Um, so the walls we have now were actually built to keep out the the Seljuk Turks. Mm. So we have this kind of new new Islamic power coming uh, coming to the fore yeah. who claim allegiance to the Abbasids but are also encroaching on the Fatimids. Yeah, and uh, I was going to say 
say something they have but I try to put off what I was trying to say for, for now but but the, what they do what they do is start to decline there is also a revival where you think they're gonna fall they don't really fall they manage to build themselves back up so how did they do that how did they build themselves up again the Fatimids or yeah. the Abbasids the Fatimids yeah yeah um, are, are you thinking of something in particular no, I mean that you. you know, I remember when I read in Michael Brett's book a while ago that they they were in decline, but then they, they, then they steadily started to build themselves up again. In- yeah, I mean, I think. Um, uh, I mean, he probably goes into more depth than I know about this, but that um, economic circumstances change, right? St- stable mm. rulership is good, and I yeah. mean, just like anything, right? You go into decline, and, and then. I, I don't think we ever had it as big, you know, as strong as it was, you know, prior to Mustansir. I mean, that's usually the case, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that you do have these times. So as I mentioned, you know, in a very simplistic way, we have this kind of later period as as being controlled by viziers. But there are moments that the caliph kind of is much more powerful mm. um, and operates at a much higher level. Um, yeah. Uh, but that these are kind of they, it doesn't get the momentum as as in the earlier. You mentioned earlier a few m- minutes ago, and uh, I, I said this in our episode about the Justin Justinian said the second as well that average person necessarily didn't care about what what you said about that they didn't care who were ruled really like the peasants, if you will. And there's a great, I, I, I said this in in that episode as well, but I want to repeat it here, that there's a great joke in Chairs where Rebecca comes back in, in the later seasons and Lord, he asked your people, Sam asked your people, dude, are you okay with a new manager? And the Norm asked kind of, will the price of beer change? No, then we don't really care. So it was kind yeah, of that. Exactly, it does kind of care. Exactly. Price of bread, you know, like uh, these are the things that, um, you know, your average person probably cares uh, most about. It wasn't like, oh, now no, no, everything's going to fuck up. Yeah. It wasn't like um, having Trump versus uh, Obama kind of thing. Yeah, but so there people get, you know, all riled up, right? So, but, um, I mean, which is not to say that there weren't normal people who cared about these things. You know, mm. we do have historical record that people are caring but you can't imagine that it's quite, I mean, it's not a democracy, right? Yeah. So you're always being ruled by some outsider. Mm. Um, so in the case of Egypt anyway, so you're, you're, it, it's a very different kind of dynamic for uh, the people who live there. Now what's fascinating, the other really fascinating thing, one of the things I really love about working on the Fatimids is that, so in the middle ages, it's really hard to know what normal people, you know, what your average. Yeah, that's kind of sad, sad though, I think, because it would be fascinating to know what the average people thought and what, how they felt about this. Well, where we can get that, though, I think the most exciting kind of branch of, of Fatimid or Egyptian history, medieval Egyptian history, are the Geniza, um, the Cairo Geniza. Do you know about this? Not familiar to so, me. So in the 19th century, people found a huge trove of documents from the Jewish community in Cairo. Mm. So there's a practice within Judaism that if something has like the word of God in it, um, you can't, you you have to dispose of it in a proper way. So there was a cache of these manuscripts that are just pieces of paper that were kind of put aside to be, you know, buried properly. And then they never were. 
So what we basically have is a thousand year old recycling bin of the Jewish mm-hmm. community in Cairo. And there's a vibrant field of Geniza studies that are you know, going through these documents. And what you get in there is you just hear like the voices of a, of a 10th century person, right? Yeah. So you just suddenly hear someone, you know, complaining about their husband being gone too long on, on some, mm-hmm. you know, trip or uh, talking about, you know, the cheese they like, or, you know, all these kind of glimpses yeah. of, of everyday concerns. In addition to, of course, there are religious texts and there are even, you know, parts of, of Fatima documents that have been reused. I mean, mm. but it's fascinating because you just get these kind of breathtaking. Mm. If you're, you know, one day, just just Google Geniza. And so Princeton and, and Cambridge have, um, you know, these these big Geniza study labs and they'll give you like a a, a slip note of the day or whatever and you can just and sometimes it really is just absolutely breathtaking to just see kind of humanity uh from a thousand years ago and i don't know how many listeners listen averagely to this podcast but i I said this before as well that you know history is very much about the elite we never know get to know much about the peasantry don't do it yeah yeah no but not too much Mm. And so of this, course, which is why this why the Geniza is such a like fabulous yeah. um, uh, treasure. Mm. And of course, we have to discuss the decline again, a second time, a bit, but this time by the hands. Of course, he's unavoidable when it comes to Fatimid history. Saladin, or yeah. Salah al Din. So, yeah. how how does he come in? Because so he's, he, he seems to be kind of on the side to, of the caliph at first, but then kind of. I might get this power for myself, kind of. Yeah, thing. basically. So it's again, you know, he's kind of operating almost like a vizier for the Fatimids and then, you know, claims power for himself. He's fighting again against the Crusaders and the Seljuks, mm. right? So, I mean, he's. And this is a very... third crusade, right? Oh, God. You would ask me which crusade it was. Um, <laughs> I think it's a third crusade. I'm pretty it, sure. It, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. It's not the fourth and it's not the first. So, mm. second or third. Yeah. Um, so um it's the one where Richard Nineheart is in. That's it. Okay, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um so he's um you know fighting on these fronts. He takes over and what's interesting there is then we have, you know, again as an architectural historian um scholars often see this period as kind of they often refer to this as the Sunni revival where we we the the um Ayyubids are kind of interested in um religious legitimacy not only against the crusaders but kind of wiping out the legacy of the fatimids right yeah. of, of this kind of shi'i uh this shi'i period um so i mean it's fascinating that we as i said that you know ismailis don't really remain in cairo we don't have yeah. we don't have a sizable shi'a commu- shi'i community in Egypt anymore. Um, so we did kind of su- succeed in that sense, though. Yeah, and we what we don't totally know is, like, we don't know how robust that community was under the Fatimids. Uh, you know, we don't know if it's something that was done away with or if it just never caught steam for whatever reason, that they weren't mm. interested in that. So, um, but we see different kinds of architectural projects. So under the Sunnis, for example, we see um, a lot of... Um, uh, 
construction uh, monuments that include mm. schools for like the four schools of of Sunni Islamic thought. So we see kind of a codification of of um, of Sunni thought um, architecturally under the Ayyubids. So what what makes him change his mind? Like, does he see that the Fatimids is really they're kind of losing their grip at this point? Does he realize that this might be my chance? What makes him think? I that suspect. He, I mean, do we know is, why he changed his mind? This is, this is you know beyond what I what I've done. So I'm not. I don't know what makes Salahuddin, you know, choose that moment. I I suspect it is just. It was just the right time at the right. Right time, right place, exactly. Mm. But but honestly, I'm not. I'm sure that this is written about, and I'm I'm, I'm you know it's, mm. it's beyond my uh, expertise. And I think that pretty much Saladin is, of course, a whole episode of its own, and I definitely intend to do him. Oh, great! At some point, I will do more Islamic episodes as well. So please stick around if you like Islamic history. I'm, I just haven't gotten around doing it as much as I would like to because it's super fascinating, this area of history. But thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to have you. And if you, where can people buy your books? And do you have anything you wish me to put in the description below? If any links, anything, social media, if you oh, want to promote? Sure. Sure. Um, definitely, my book is Building the Caliphate, uh, Construction, Destruction, and Sectarian Identity in, in Fatimid um, Architecture. So check that out. It's from Yale University Press. Um, and I teach at the University of Wisconsin. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been well that age 12. We are available on social media, on Instagram, on under well that age 12. You can find us there. If you want to see my photos from my t- when I was in Berlin and I visited the Islamic Museum there, you can go find those as you stroll a little bit down. You can also see where how, when I met Professor Irving Finkel, a previous historian on this podcast. We are available on Spot- Spotify, sorry, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find this podcast. If you are an Apple Podcast, and I know there is quite a few listeners there, please consider writing a review. And if you have a request for topic or historian that you would like to see on the podcast, that is your favorite that you would like to hear, please consider writing me and I will get or get in touch on my email, which is also in the description. And I will consider having you on. I am always open to suggestions. So please like, share and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.